Morning, everyone. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day, and uh, thank you for being here. And everybody's got here on time and early. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm impressed. This is awesome. Uh, but it's a joy to see you all this morning and looking forward to continuing our uh, conversation through core seminar as we think through corporate worship. Um, there will be some slides on the screen to kind of help you along the way. This one, uh, I'm going to be sharing a lot of different quotes and things like that. And so uh, this is mostly just to help you follow along as I read them, not to try to capture them, okay? So just keep that in mind, because uh, I'm going to read them, and you're not going to be able to write down every little quote. But, um, but that way, you can kind of follow along as I, I read from some of these. But today, as we think through Course Seminar, we're going to be talking about the preaching of the Word in corporate worship. And so let me open up with a word of prayer, and then I'll do a bit of recapping, and then we'll kind of dive into our topic of hand this morning. So let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful every time we get together, uh, but Lord, I, I am grateful for this uh, opportunity this morning to spend some extra time before we officially gather as a church for worship at 1030, Lord, for this time, of course, seminar. And Lord, anytime we have the opportunity to open up your word and to study it and to read it and reflect upon it, Lord, we count it as a great joy and privilege. And so, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning. Lord, I pray that this time thinking through the preaching of the word when it comes to the worship of your people, Lord, that it would be fruitful and encouraging, and Lord, that even so it would prepare our hearts, Lord, as we prepare to gather together, Lord, to worship King Jesus this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So just to recap you a little bit on where we've been these last few weeks, um, you'll remember that Chris started us off week one thinking through uh, just what is worship, and, and Chris kind of did a really wonderful job of, of walking us through the canon of Scripture, thinking through what's, what's sort of the biblical theology of worship. With week two, I came up and I, I kind of helped us think through what is happening when God's people gather together. Uh, what, what is occurring? How is the, the worship of God's people a uniquely sweet and wonderful and faithful thing when God's people assemble together? Of course, we can worship the Lord privately, but there's something unique and powerful that happens when God's people assemble together in a gathering uh, for the purpose of worship. Now, last week, if you were here, you might remind ourselves, and again, if you've missed any of these, uh, Chris is putting them on our podcast feed, by the way, as a church, so if you ever miss one, you can go back and, and check it out if you, if you would like. Uh, but last week, you remember, we talked about this thing called the regulative principle, which might have been a new concept for, for you, but uh, the regulative principle is simply an idea that God's word is sufficient in determining how God's people worship, what we do when we gather together. And as we talked about the regulative principle, you remember that there are three key terms that are helpful in thinking through it. You've got the idea of elements, forms, and circumstance, right, if you remember that. So the elements are the five things that the Bible explicitly states that we are to do every time we worship. And if you need a crash course reminder, those five things are the preaching of the word, praying the word, reading the word, singing the word, seeing the word, and, and the ordinances. Those are the five things that faithful Christian worship ought to include, right? It, it must include those things. And the regulative principle states that worship ought to only include those five things, those five elements. Now, remember, forms then are the different variations from culture and time in terms of how we put those elements into practice, 
right? So singing might have a different form from church to church. Some church might use drums and guitars. Other churches might use organs and pianos. Other churches might not use instruments at all, right? Those are all various forms of the element of singing. And as we talked about with forms, there's a certain amount of freedom uh, in Christ in terms of how we put some of these things into practice. But there can also be some challenging things to think through as well, as sometimes these additional forms kind of masquerade as additional elements. And when that's the case, I suggested that it's best to avoid those completely, particularly as we don't want to impinge the conscience of another believer in the church uh, with a potential extra element of Worship. And then you had that third category of circumstances, which are really just the the logistics of worship, where, of course, there's great freedom. How do you arrange the chairs? What color carpet do you have? Do you use screens or not a screen, right? Those are all just circumstances. The Bible doesn't say anything specific about them. But yet, as I try to urge us, uh, the the Bible and biblical priorities should still help the way we think about those things, right, in terms of how we do them. So those those three categories, elements, forms, and circumstances, are, are the kind of the way we try to put the regulative principle into practice. So as we continue through this course seminar, Chris and I are going to take an e- uh, a lesson thinking through each one of these five elements of worship, the five things that the Bible says we must do and only do when it comes to the worship of God's people. And as you might imagine, I'm going to be taking the first one on the preaching of the word, right? That's our focus today, thinking through the preaching of the word. And uh, and Drew, you want to put up the title screen there, brother? So that way people can see it and get it down. Um, So as we think about the the preaching of the word, one of the first questions I want to raise is, is preaching necessary? Is preaching necessary? Is it something we really need to do, (laughs) right? You might think, as as a member of Redemption Church, uh, of course it's necessary, but There are a lot of people out there really wrestling and asking and thinking through, is preaching really something we we need to be doing? You know, there there are lots of other ways. In fact, preaching today seems a little old-fashioned, right? You have one guy standing up on the stage delivering an extended monologue, uh, often with this aura of authority uh, attached to it. And, you know, things are much more casual now. They're much more conversational you know, the whole, the whole mood and idea of preaching, that just seems to be a little unnecessary today. Is there another way of doing this? And of course, I want to suggest to you that the preaching of the word is absolutely necessary when the church gathers. And it's necessary because faithful preaching produces healthy churches. That's the pattern we see in the New Testament. Preaching, as we talked about just a few weeks ago, is a means of grace that the Lord uses to build up his church. It is the public ministry of the word of God in the life of God's people. And so it ought to be, and as Protestants we have always believed this, it ought to be the dominant feature of Christian worship, where the word of God is opened before the people and its truths are heralded to them through the preacher. And the preacher does stand in that gap as God's messenger, as heralding the inerrant and inspired word of God. And the preacher ought to read the text and explain the text to the church, and the church should respond to those truths with worship to the one true God. T. David Gordon uh, wrote a fascinating book called Why Johnny Can't Preach. 
Maybe you've heard of that book before. If not, uh, if you're not a preacher, you probably haven't heard of it. Uh, but T. David Gordon, he was a professor of kind of literature and media at a Christian school. And, uh, and he was often sitting under good, faithful, Bible-believing churches listening to preaching. And he ends up getting cancer, and he thinks he's dying. He, you know, the doctors have said it's terminal. And so kind of his last word to the world was, why preaching is bad. <laughs> and, and so he's really critiquing churches like us, evangelical churches, and as he listens to preaching. And so, of course, you know, a dying man's final words have a certain level of punch to them, don't they? Um, and, and so miraculously, by the grace of God, Gordon actually recovered from, from his cancer. And so this was not, he's still alive. This is not the final thing that he left for the world. But as he wrote the book, he thought it would be. And so this little book is written by a Christian layman who's critiquing and analyzing the state of preaching today. And he said this, and I think this is a really good insight here. This should be on the screen. He says, show me a church where the preaching is good, and yet the church is still more abound. I've never seen a church. Uh, that's, a, that's a typo. All right, the more abound churches I've seen have been malpreached to death. But the fact that large segments of the church are abandoning anything like traditional preaching altogether establishes my point, that Johnny can't preach. He preaches so poorly that even believers have come to disbelieve that God has chosen through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. You see, over the time, uh, we see that the culture of the church is shaped by its preaching. It's shaped by its preaching. That when a preacher consistently neglects the clear teaching of Scripture, when he distorts the gospel, when he rails on certain hobby horses, what happens is instead of the spiritual formation of the church, there's a spiritual deformation that happens as the congregation is not shaped to the image of Christ, but instead shaped into the clownish image of the preacher's own self-reflection. The preacher must bring the full weight of God's word to bear on his hearers. And the desire is not to replicate in preaching the idiosyncrasies of the preachers, but it's to conform Christians to the pattern of Christ. And so because of these carnal shenanigans of vain pulpiteers, a congregation can, sadly, begin to disbelieve in the effectiveness of Christian preaching. They question its power. After all, if you're on a steady diet of spoiled milk, that's all they know, that's all they've tasted, can we really blame them for thinking such things? Sadly, many Christians today are ignorant of the satisfaction brought by a steady diet of homiletical steak. Like starving children, they have stopped their tears of protest, and they sit quietly, submissively, learning to tolerate the pangs of spiritual hunger, content without crying out for food. So many Christians have accepted and endured the misery of malnourishment and no longer protest. You see, the, the pastoral abuse over many years leads to the death of a church. After all, what sort of body can survive without food? Before long, a, a, a a healthy church will begin to atrophy without the, the right preaching of the word. And it will atrophy in conflict and carnality, beginning to consume itself until its own demise. And on that church's death certificate, 
And sadly, there seems to be more and more in our world today, doesn't there? The, the, the death certificate, the cause of death will be marked starvation. Starvation. And the Lord God, who is the shepherd of the flock, will stand against the shepherds who failed in their most foundational and most necessary of tasks to feed the sheep. So biblical preaching is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Now, as we think through what facet does Christian preaching have when it comes to the worship of God's people, I kind of want to do so in two key sections here. I want to give us six principles, six biblical observations, excuse me, about expositional preaching. And then I want to give us six principles for expositional preaching in corporate worship. So I want to kind of show you where do we get this idea of expositional preaching from in the Bible, do a quick, broad overview. And then I want to help us think through how do we put this into practice in the corporate worship of God's people. So let's think through firstly, six biblical observations about expositional preaching. You can see them right here. I'm going to take one at a time. We are going to move kind of quick. So if you've got your Bible, we'll, we'll test your ability to flip through the scriptures as we bounce to them. Um, but the first one I want to take you to is Nehemiah chapter 8. And this is the idea that expositional preaching fuels the worship of God's people. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, you'll remember that this is where Ezra uh, reads the law and explains the law to God's people. We won't read the entirety of the passage due to time, but look at Nehemiah 8 chapter 1, if you've got your Bible there, or just listen to me as I read. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard uh, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive uh, to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So again, fascinating here in Ezra, right? This is post-exilic Israel. They've come back to the, the, the city of Jerusalem. And of course, Ezra stands up and he reads the word, another facet of the elements of worship, right? He reads the word standing on some sort of platform, right? So people could hear him and see him. Very, very similar to how we think of the preaching of the word today. So Ezra begins to read, but look on in verse 8 in particular, uh, verse 7 and 8. It says that the, the, the brothers there, Ezra and the, and the rest of the crew, uh, whose names I won't read right now, but he, he helped the people to understand the law, verse 7, while the people remained in their places. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here we see Ezra read the, the word of God to the people and then help them understand it. Give the sense. What is, what is being said? There's an explanation of the word of God taking place. And of course, we don't have time to read all of Ezra chapter 8, but this leads to a response of worship. A holy day, the Feast of Booths is celebrated. There's a renewed worship that happens as the word is read and explained to God's people. So this sort of model of expositional preaching we see in the Old Testament leads to worship. That's a biblical principle I want to first highlight for us. Second, expositional preaching guards the people of God. It guards the people of God. I won't go too far into this text because I don't want to spoil the sermon this morning. 
But Malachi chapter 2 actually deals with this idea directly, particularly Malachi 2, verse 7 through 8. And again, we'll focus on this uh, during the preaching of the word this morning, but let me just read these two verses. He says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the way the Lord rebukes the priests for their failure to rightly instruct, because the lips of the priest should protect, should guard the people so they do not rebel against the Lord or go fall into a spiritual ditch. And by their failure to instruct, the people of Israel are placed in spiritual danger. Expositional preaching ought to guard the spiritual lives of God's people. Thirdly, expositional preaching is modeled by Jesus. I think Jesus does this, right? Particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We don't have time to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount, but it's often that Jesus will quote or allude to a biblical passage, and then he gives the explanation of it. He does this uh, primarily, uh, let me give, give you a really clear example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, right? Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire, right? And it goes on from there. But what is Jesus doing on the Sermon on the Mount? And often as he does in his teaching, he says, this is what the scriptures say. Here's what they mean. That's expositional preaching. Here's what God's word says. Here's what it means. Jesus did the same thing very frequently in his ministry. Uh, we also see, number four, that expositional preaching is not only modeled by Jesus, but also modeled by Paul in the New Testament. <coughs> I think you see the clearest example of this in Paul's evangelistic sermon in Acts chapter 13, where Paul preaches a gospel presentation, a gospel message uh, to Antioch and Pisidia. And here we see that Paul begins to quote from the Old Testament. And again, what is he doing here? He's reading God's word and explaining it to the people. That's expositional preaching. So if you've got Acts 13 in front of you, or if you would like to just listen to me, Acts 13, verse 32, Paul's preaching here. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, uh, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, quote, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Again, what is Paul doing there? He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's explaining it to the people. And he's doing that in the sense of evangelism, which maybe perhaps there's another point I could include here. Expositional preaching is evangelistic, right? We, we take God's word, we read it, we proclaim it, we bring it to bear on those who are before us. Fifth, expositional preaching seems to be a major feature of early Christian worship. We see this in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Uh, this is where Paul is in Troas. This is the famous incident where Poor old Eutychus falls asleep and falls out a window. Remember that situation? But, but again, this passage here is fascinating, not just because of Eutychus and, and not getting enough sleep the night before, uh, 
But it's also fascinating because we do get a snapshot of what a Lord's Day gathering in the early church was like. It's a, it's a little picture that we get in the book of Acts. And if you look at Acts chapter 20, verse 7, um, we see that the teaching, the preaching of the word was the normal thing the church did when they gathered together. Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, that's the Lord's day, right? When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight, right? So this is not a prescription for the length of Christian preaching, so take heart. (laughs) But it does help us see that when the church gathered together for worship, they broke bread, reference to the Lord's Supper, and they had preaching. Paul taught, and I'm sure he taught from the scriptures, right? That's what he all always did. And so again, we see in the snapshot of early Christian worship, preaching played a dominant role in the church's worship, so much so that they go till midnight with Paul teaching and preaching from God's word. Number six, expositional preaching is Paul's final charge to future pastors. This comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through Five. Uh, again, we saw T. Gordon Clark's, what his final message might be as a Christian layman, why Johnny can't preach. But towards 2 Timothy, we also see this is Paul's most likely final words to his great protege, Timothy. And what does he tell Timothy to do? Well, create good church committees. No, that's not what he does, right? Or, or be sure to, to have engaging and relevant worship. No, he doesn't say that either. He tells Timothy to preach the word, right? I'm sure you're aware of this passage. And not only does he tell him to preach the word, but he, Paul frames this up with such intensity and gravity and seriousness. Listen to Paul write in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. Amazing, right? Paul gives this final charge, I would say not just to Timothy, but to all who would step into that pastoral role of responsibility, that charge to preach your opinion. No, preach the word, right? Preach the word of God and be ready every season. Good season, bad season, seasons of prosperity, seasons seasons of decline in the church. The word of God must never cease to be preached among God's people. So there's a lot more, of course, I could say about expositional preaching from the scriptures, but hopefully this gives you a sense, this quick snapshot, that the reading and explanation of the word of God is at the heart of expositional preaching. And not only do we see commanded in the scripture, but we also see modeled in the scripture. And so it's these biblical observations that lead me to give you these six principles of expositional preaching in corporate worship. So not only am I going to give you these six principles, but another wonderful thing that I love to do is to read books about preaching, right? And so I'm going to share with you some, some quotes from other preachers that kind of comment and illustrate uh, some of these six principles, right? So the first is that Christian preaching teaches and exhorts the church from God's word, right? That last phrase is key, from 
God's word. And here's a quote from John Piper from his book on preaching called Expository Exaltation, which is John Piper's definition for preaching. Here's what he writes. He says, since Paul tells us to preach the scripture, therefore, the nature and aim of scripture dictates the nature and aim of preaching. Both scripture and preaching aim at worship and are worshipful. Both preaching and scripture teach the truth of God's glory and worth, and both reverberate with more than teaching, namely, the treasure of God. The heart of the preacher and the author and authors of scripture overflow with the infinite value of what they reveal. Scripture communicates the explanation of God's beauty and worth, and Scripture communicates the exaltation of its authors over the worth and beauty. Scripture is always true and never neutral. Therefore, preaching, aiming at the same ultimate worship as Scripture does, explains God's glory and worth and exalts over God's glory and worth. So again, Scripture has this aim. As we explain, teach from Scripture, it aims to cause us to exalt Rejoice, delight in God and who he is. Preaching is an act of worship done rightly as we do so from God's word. Second principle here, the preaching of the word should engage the whole person, right? Head and heart and call the church to respond in action. Preaching is not just an intellectual thing. It's not aiming just to dump facts from the Bible into people's heads, We preach the truth of God's word, and we preach the the word of God clearly. We explain it. We want people to to understand it mentally, right? But the aim is ultimately to get to people's hearts with the help of the Spirit to have people respond and be transformed by what they understand from God's word. Both need to be in the target aims of the pastor or the preacher, So here's a quote from Jonathan Edwards, and this is one of my favorites on Christian preaching. He says, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. What does does he mean there? Well, I'm I'm sure you probably have heard some preachers or maybe come across one on TV that are really good at raising emotions, right? They're really good at whipping up the crowd into some sort of emotional frenzy. Edward says, I I want people to have affections for the Lord, love for the Lord, but I want to raise their affections as high as I possibly can so long as I do so with the truth, right? The truth is the means by which we spur people to, to love the Lord. Anything else is just emotionalism that should be rejected. Preacher, that's not what we're trying to do. We're not just trying to get people teary-eyed or get people to have a response, get people excited, right? The aim is to have people respond in love and worship to God as they respond to the truth. And so the preaching of the truth of God's word is essential. We start, aim for the head, and we're aiming for ultimately the heart of God's people. Third, Verse-by-verse exposition encourages the Word of God to set the agenda for the gathering. Let me share with you a quote. This is from a pastor named Tony Morita, who was actually my preaching professor at Southeastern. Uh, He's a pastor in Raleigh, and in his book, The Christ-Centered Expositor, he gives this neat little illustration of why the steady diet of verse-by-verse preaching, verse-by-verse exposition 
is the, the preferred way of doing it. Uh, he says, even though there's some liberty in the form of the sermon, I believe the best way to grow healthy disciples is by moving verse by verse through books of the Bible, simply allowing the main point of selected passages to drive the main point of your weekly sermon. While there may be times in which a pastor thinks another approach would be helpful for his people, I believe these occasions should not be the norm. Over time, I believe the pastor will see the wonderful benefits of system, uh, systematic exposition. I like to say that moving systematically through books is the diet of our congregation, but occasionally we go out to eat, preaching a topositional or a thematic series. That's a, that's a good illustration, right? So again, the steady diet when we have our family home cooked meals is verse by verse exposition, like we're doing right now with Balakai. This is kind of our normal thing that we do. Occasionally, we'll go out to eat and do a series on the means of grace, right? But our main steady diet is, is the verse by verse exposition through God's word. And so I think that's a powerful way of a method of preaching. Again, there's some freedom here, right? And you can do topositional messages, and that's kind of a combination of topical and exposition. Every topical message should be expositing God's word, right? Um, but uh, some are, are a little bit more scattered. But, but again, what happens when you do weekly verse-by-verse -verse exposition is it forces the church and the preacher to deal with texts that nobody would ordinarily choose of their own volition, right? I can think of many texts that I would never just say, oh, well, let me, let me think about what I want to preach today. Oh, Malachi 1, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That sounds like a great one. Let's go there. That's just not the sort of passage you just naturally gravitate towards, unless you're just like making people angry sometimes, right? Or, or you preach those controversial texts. But all of God's word is God's word. All of it is profitable for the building up of his church. And verse-by-verse -verse exposition forces the preacher not just to gravitate towards their hobby horses, but to preach the full counsel of God. It's easy as a preacher. There are some sermons, some topics, some themes that, man, I, I could gravitate towards every Sunday, if it will. But you need to hear more than just what I want to preach about. You need to hear all of God's word. And systematic verse-by-verse -verse exposition forces me and forces you to hear from all of God's word. So verse-by-verse -verse exposition, uh, that is a, the best method because it does set the agenda for, for what happens in the preaching event. And that's wonderfully protective for the preacher sometimes too, right? Because it kind of takes away any sort of edge of, hey, you picked this passage to get at me in the church. I've, I've had some people in the past say, well, you know, uh, you know, maybe, were you talking about me when you're talking about that text? And I'm like, no, like we might've had an incident this past week, but this is literally the next verse of scripture. I'm just preaching God's word. I, I, I'm not preach. I didn't pick this text because I had a bad elders meeting the week before and I want to jab at the elder. I mean, that's, it kind of takes away that whole thing, right? Um, it's just, this is what the next text says. And if it providentially puts a, a dagger in your heart, um, perhaps the Lord is speaking. You might want to listen, right? And so again, it takes the, the edge off of it and, and allows God's word to really take the forefront of the church's worship. Fourth, the Spirit works uniquely in the embodied interaction between the preacher and the congregation. This might be a, a little bit more polarizing, uh, even among some of my preacher friends, but I think there's something unique and special that happens when the preacher and the congregation are in the same room, right? That preaching is an incarnational event. 
right? You can go online and you can find lots of good podcasts of Christian preachers, and you can be serviced and edified and built up by them in a lot of ways. But there's something unique about what happens when God's people gather, when you hear the voice, when you see the expression, when you, when you have that physical incarnation interaction between a live preacher and the church. This is why I think so much of the, the video satellite church movement is so misguided in so many ways, because it discounts the fact that the Spirit works incarnationally. Preaching is an incarnational event in which the preacher is embodying God's Word and heralding it physically to God's people, right? The way you're hearing me right now is, is partly through a microphone, but partly because my vocal cords are moving, right? There's, there's an incarnational physical act happening here. And again, that can't be replicated through a Facebook Live feed, and it can't be replicated by a video, right? So there's something special and unique that happens in the in-person preaching event. Um, there's a couple quotes I will share here. Um, I might skip that one due to time. Well, let's go ahead and read it. It's Jonathan Edwards. You can't skip it, right? All right, so here's what it says. Um, it does not answer the aim which God had in this institution, merely for men to have good commentaries and expositions on the scripture and other good books of divinity. Because, although these may tend as well as preaching to give a good doctrinal or speculative understanding of the word of God, yet they have not an, an equal tendency to impress them on men's hearts and affections. All right, so let me stop there real quick. What is he saying? He's saying you can go and find a good Bible commentary and read it and study it, and you can learn a lot about the Bible that way. Those can be helpful. Those can be good. But he said, Edward says they, they do not have the equal tendency to impress them on men's hearts and affections, right? That the actual preaching event takes that Bible knowledge and, and forces it upon your heart in a unique way. Here's Edwards continues. He says, God hath appointed a particular and lively application of his word in the preaching of it as a fit means to affect sinners with the importance of religion, their own misery, the necessity of a, rem a remedy, and the glory and sufficiency of a remedy provided to stir up the pure minds of the saints, quicken their affections by often bringing the great things of religion in their remembrance and setting them in the proper colors, though they know them and have been fully instructed in them already. So that's Edward's long and meandering way of saying there's something special that God does in the preaching of the word that's different than merely listening to a podcast, reading a Bible commentary. Right? There's an incarnational event in which the Spirit of God is using the preaching of the Word. And I think some of you have sensed this in your own souls this last year. Many of you engaged online for an extended period due to this pandemic. And of course, it's completely understandable due to the circumstances we found ourselves in. But I think we've all sensed that that is not an ideal way of doing it. Right? That there is a sense in which there are distractions here on Sunday morning. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit different when you're trying to listen to me preach and fold your laundry at the same time, right? Or, or prepare for lunch, right? There, there's just something that happens in the in-person bodily gathering. There, there's something of a, a sad disarray in our minds when we listen to a, a preaching podcast while we're washing the dishes, right? There, there's something, there's a disconnect there. But there's something special about sitting in a room with the preacher, hearing God's word being preached. And it's not because, because of me or, or the preacher themselves. It's because the Spirit of God is that unique working in the embodied incarnational event of preaching. Let me share with you another quote from another preaching professor I had named Greg Heisler. 
Um, he's not at Southeastern anymore. I'm not sure where he is now. But, uh, but he wrote a book called um, Spirit-Led Preaching. And he talks about this incarnational idea. He says, incarnational preaching calls the preacher to allow the truth he proclaims to flow through his personality so that gestures, facial expressions, eye communication, and vocal dynamics reflect the truth of the text and the Spirit's movement in the preacher's life. The result is natural, genuine, and authentic delivery that emphasizes openness and sensitivity to the Spirit's leading. So again, this idea that there's something actually happening in the preaching moment as God works uniquely in the room. Number five, fifth principle here, preaching ought to be both focused on discipleship and evangelism, not entertainment, right? What we are aiming to do in preaching, I'm not a stand-up comedian, and if you've listened to me for more than one week, you'll realize I'm not that good of one even if I tried to be, right? I'm not a, I'm not a funny guy. Uh, my children think I'm remarkably boring most of the time. Um, but they're, they're, that's not the aim of preaching, right? The aim of preaching is, is not to do my, my Brian Regan impression up on stage or whatever your favorite stand-up comedian is, right? That's not what I'm here to do. That's not what we're here. There can, humor can be an effective device in preaching sometimes and engaging and impressing truths. Humor can be a tool, but humor and entertainment is not the aim of anything that we're doing here on Sunday morning. That's not the goal, right? The goal of preaching is discipleship and evangelism as we bring the gospel to bear on people's lives. And as the preacher preaches, both of those aims need to be in view. I'm not just preaching a a Billy Graham crusade sermon every Sunday. There's a place for that. There's a place for strongly evangelistic messages, but the steady diet of the church's gathering should have a focus on both discipleship and evangelism. And I think the preacher should try to do both every Sunday. Now, some sermons and some texts might emphasize one over the other, depending on the week. But again, both of those need to be in mind. I want to build up the people who are here in Christ with the word of God. And I want to keep in mind that there are those here who may not know the Lord that need to hear the message of salvation in Christ Jesus. Those can sometimes be difficult priorities to juggle in preaching, but they are necessary. Let me share with you uh, a quote from a guy, a pastor named William Still. And uh, again, I can't wait till I get old because when you're old, you can just say really snarky and bold things and people just love it. You know, it's just, so William Still wrote this uh, towards the end of his life. And this is kind of an old pastor after decades of ministry. And he's just kind of critiquing the state of the evangelical world. I'm going to share with you another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones in a bit as well. He, he had that same sort of mood, you know, it's like, all right, let me just tell you how it is, kid. All right. And this is exactly what William Still is doing here. He's talking about the pastor. And he says, it is to, what's the pastor supposed to do, right? It is to feed sheep on such truth that men are called to churches and congregations, whatever they may think they are called to do. If you think that you are called to keep a largely worldly organization, miscalled a church, uh, going with infinitesimal doses of innocuous sub-Christian drugs or stimulants, then the only help I can give you is to advise you to give up the hope of ministry and go and be a street scavenger a far healthier and more godly job keeping the streets tidy than cluttering the church with a lot of worldly claptrap and the delusion that you are doing a job for God. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats and let them do it out of goat land. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe 
that the word of God by his spirit changes as well as maddens men. If we do to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of the sheep, we must be men of the word of God. We got to feed the sheep, right? Pandering to goatishness is not an effective mission strategy. But sadly, I feel like that's what many have done in the church today. Let's pander to goats. Let's entertain goats. Let's figure out what we can do to get goats in the door. And you can't win goats to the gospel by by preaching a false gospel of goatishness, right? To use Still's word. Number six, preaching should receive a priority of time in the gathered worship of God's people. Uh, If you've been at Redemption for any length of time, you'll know that about half of our worship service is dedicated to the preaching event, the preaching of the Word of God. That's intentional. Now, there's a reason I'm not preaching 10, 15-minute sermonettes. One, I don't think I'm capable. Two, uh, you know, we need to hear more fully from God's Word. And preaching, in some ways, is countercultural because people's attention spans are remarkably slow, right? Commercial and advertisers, they figured out that we've got to get you a message within 10 seconds and then move on. Uh, It's remarkable to see how clips and editing and videos are so fast moving. Often within, I think, if I remember correctly, I think it's gone from like six or seven seconds between a video edit uh, back in like the 70s to now it's like 1.2 seconds, right? There's a a shift. And why is that? Because our our, our attention spans have gotten so poor in this video media age. Um, And, you know, here's the quote here, right? Uh, This is T. David Gordon speaking from his book, Why Johnny Can't Preach. And he talks about how the intention span is a challenge, right? But a culture that is accustomed to commercial interruptions every six or seven minutes loses its ability to discuss significant matters because it has lost the patience necessary to consider them. Uh, the, The impatience of our world today is a great challenge for Christian preaching. But yet, the response is not to just embrace people's short attention span with short little sermonettes. As I heard one person say, sermonettes create Christianettes, right? Uh, we, we want full Christians, right? And so it requires that we do this countercultural thing where you sit in a room and listen to someone preach God's word to you for 45 minutes without interruption. That's very strange in our culture today. But yet, it is the means by which God saves and builds up his church. Martin Lloyd-Jones, also uh, the the great Welsh preacher, as he was getting older, and again, he died in the 80s, but as he was looking at the evangelical world, he was getting more concerned about this this, uh, obsession over entertainment and pandering to people that he was beginning to see happen in the church. And, uh, And one of the things that he was becoming increasingly concerned by was how singing and music programs and were, were overtaking the preaching of the word in the worship. And Lloyd-Jones uh, was not kind to this, this sort of uh, motivation, right? In fact, it was during Lloyd-Jones's generation that uh, you started having people on staff that did music full-time, right? And, and Lloyd-Jones saw that as largely a travesty. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and, and again, it's more than fitting to have someone devoted to that task, but, but Lloyd-Jones's concern was that it's, it's becoming more about the worship program, the soloist, the, this whole thing, and it's detracting from the preaching of the word. And of course, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a similar way, laments the state of public worship he sees in his lifetime, right? And here's what he said in his famous book, Preaching and Preachers. Still worse, he says, has been the increase in the element of entertainment in public worship. 
the use of films, and the introduction of more and more singing, the reading of word and prayer shortened drastically, but more and more time given to singing. You have a, quote, song leader, a new kind of official in the church, and he conducts the singing and is supposed to produce the atmosphere. But he often takes so much time in producing the atmosphere that there is no time for preaching in the atmosphere. This is a part of the whole depreciation of the message. So in other words, Lloyd-Jones, and I think rightly says that as sermons seem to get, be getting shorter and shorter and shorter in his lifetime, filled with other things, he saw that, that perhaps entertainment, music, that's becoming more and more dominant in worship today. But then the ministry of the word seems to be getting shorter. Prayer in the church seems to be getting shorter. The reading of God's word seems to be getting shorter. We're, we're, we're cutting away some of these other important elements of worship to do one or two. And, and Lloyd-Jones saw that as a great travesty. Again, there's so much focus on building an atmosphere for worship, there's no time to actually do the work of preaching in the midst of that, that atmosphere. So as you can begin to see, expositional preaching is a key part of who we are. It's one of our core values here at Redemption Church, something we value as a priority, a, a key facet of our ministry and our uh, philosophy of ministry. But the aim of preaching is to spur people to worship the one true God. And so as we conclude today, that is going to be my prayer as we break and prepare for worship. And as people are coming in, I need to close in prayer now, right? As we prepare our hearts to gather with the church to worship. Let's, let's pray quickly. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for preachers of your word. We thank you that you uniquely use the preaching of your word to build up your church. Father, as we gather in just a few minutes with the rest of your body, we pray that you would be exalted and honored in our hearts, Lord, as we worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.